Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Uh, After last week's series of meetings between Russia and the West ended without a breakthrough, it appears that the two sides are now at a deadlock over Ukraine. I would say pessimism is growing, especially given a series of events ranging from the cyber attacks on Ukraine last week, reports that Russia is evacuating families of Russian diplomats from Ukraine, Russian military movements, and the announcement of a joint exercise with Belarus next week. I think it is indeed a pretty grim picture. So today we are going to continue our series of rapid reactions to this constantly developing crisis. And we're pleased to welcome Mike Kaufman and Angela Stent to the podcast to discuss how events in with Russia and Ukraine are likely to evolve in the coming weeks. So Mike and Angela, welcome. Let me do very quick bios for both. Um, Mike Kaufman serves as the research program director in the Russia Studies program at CNA, and he's an adjunct at CNES. And his research focuses on Russia and the former Soviet Union, specializing in Russian armed forces, military thought, capabilities, and strategy. And Angela Stent is senior advisor to the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies and Professor Emerita of Government and Foreign Service at Georgetown University. She's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and she co-chairs its Hewitt Forum on Post-Soviet Affairs. So Angela, let's start with you. Just help us make sense of where we are, kind of where would you say we are on the diplomatic path and kind of your sense of the trajectory and the direction that things are heading in this crisis? Well, thank you for having me on, Andrea and Jim. So I think the Russians, we're at a point now where the Russians want us to seriously believe that they could invade at any point. Um, They have formally said that all the three sets of conversations that took place the previous week were basically useless. Uh, And as far as the OSCE is concerned, uh, the Russian ambassador of the OSCE, Mr. Lukashevich, has said the OSCE is a complete waste of time. It's not even worth talking there. Um, so that, that's the formal side. Um, and, but on the other hand, we do know that there are conversations going on all the time uh, between uh, the people at the White House, between the State Department, different people in Russia. Secretary Blinken um, is about to go out to the region. Um, I believe he's going to go to Kiev and Moscow. Um, and we did have this interesting incident or a development um, last week where the Russians suddenly rolled up Revo, which was this ransomware group uh, that had attacked different targets in the United States and elsewhere. And I think the message there probably was, we can do this if we want to. uh, And maybe if we can get something from you, uh, we can do more on the ransomware and cyber front. So it's a very tense time. I think people are looking at this very pessimistically. Um, I think People also believe that Mr. Putin is still trying to get possibly another meeting with President Biden. And that's not off the table. It's not imminent, but it's something that could happen. So I think there is still some room for diplomacy. We can get into the details of what kinds of of deals you could work out, what you can discuss. They have, the Russians haven't shut the door to that. But on the other hand, and I'm sure Mike Kaufman will talk about this, the military situation, if you look at it, and most of what I know, I know from reading what he writes, is that one could believe that an invasion is imminent. Yeah, Mike, why don't you pick up there? I mean, so there's clearly quite a lot happening on the diplomatic front. Last week was a very big week for diplomacy. 
most indications are that we may be nearing the end of the diplomatic path, but as Angela said, it's not entirely shut off. But meanwhile, there's a whole lot going on in terms of force posture and, and what Russia is doing to move forces to the border. So can you talk to us a little bit about what you see uh, in terms of what Russia is moving to the border uh, and also maybe pick up on this announced exercise with Belarus and kind of how you see that fitting into this picture. Sure. Well, uh, I'll give you first my take that I've, I've been kind of pessimistic on the development of the situation all along, going back to early November. I thought, yeah, last week was probably a good week for performative diplomacy. I'm not sure how much of substantive diplomacy really took week, took place during those meetings. What I will tell you is that the Russian military buildup has continued to pace. There was a pause on it in January, but uh, they began sending quite a few more units and they sent them before the rounds of diplomacy last week. So the Eastern Military District, which is the Russian Far East, you know, we're talking 11 time zones away, had loaded up a fairly substantial amount of gear and had sent it and they were in travel the entire time and they were clearly going to Belarus. Oh, an announcement of the exercise in Belarus, of course, took place well after they loaded the gear and sent it, not before. Um, and, and so a lot of this is kind of a, an evolving cover story where you probably have or had around, you know, as an imprecise unit measurement around 60 battalion tactical groups, sort of Russian offensive maneuver formations, overall positioned uh, near Ukraine's borders. Then you had a whole added batch from Eastern Military District going into Belarus and posing the threat of a north and northwestern uh, flank. Um, there's further activity today that suggests they might be sending uh, landing ship tanks, basically ships to be able to conduct an amphibious assault from the Baltic fleet, which might begin making their way towards the Black Sea, essentially going around Europe. Um, they even sent naval infantry units from the Pacific fleet. So a lot of this is unprecedented. You really haven't had the Eastern Military District deployed to Belarus. Obviously, it's not an exercise testing the Russian Far East ability to defend Belarus from 11 time zones away. That's not a logical proposition. Um, and uh, when you kind of look at uh, the, the force posture that as, as is unfolding, what I think you're seeing is a steady sustained buildup, a, a period of strategic warning that has now been exhausted, but we're now in a place where um, while the Russian military cannot necessarily conduct an operation within days, it's certainly workable for them within weeks. And so the next piece of warning is gonna be much more sort of tactical to this fairly short notice. We're seeing across Russian military districts a rolling call up of reserves as well. And they're signaling in each military district they have about 9,000 reservists they've signed up. So what you're kind of seeing is uh, an, offensive, an initial offensive maneuver force, a follow-on force of battalion tactical groups that's being built up around it, and a reservist follow-on force as well that suggests that they're positioned to be able to occupy territory, um, uh, hold on to ground lines of communication and the like. So uh, I, I would say that the military picture looks grim, right? Not all the indicators around the situation point you in the same conclusion, but I would say the more important ones, because always a conversation of what you weigh and what has the most and local rigor behind it. But the most significant ones suggest that they are still continuing to position for large-scale military operation, that they actually didn't really halt this positioning for the sake of talks, and that they're moving along with plans on their own internal timetable, and from my point of view, after last week, the likelihood of war was high to begin with, but is now really increased, basically, an expansion of this conflict in a qualitatively completely different phase. 
Uh, thank you very much, both of you. That's that's very helpful. But let me let me ask Mike. Uh, you know, one thing that's been very interesting to watch has been what's happening in the in the Nordic Baltic area. And at first, I thought it was uh, Swedish reactions. Well, there's a number of things. It was the Finnish president's speech. Uh, there was a, a Swedish response about this idea of joining NATO. Uh, and I think the press kind of exaggerated a bit what the Finnish president was saying. But anyway, that was kind of in the air. And then as you, you mentioned the LSTs, two of them uh, or three departed from Kaliningrad, crossing the Baltic. And the Swedes uh, put on alert their, their military forces. They, they went into, they were already on Gotland, but they reinforced Gotland. They did all these things, a lot of things coming out of Stockholm, including this morning, uh, where they're they're edging towards our, our war footing, uh, drones uh, over Sweden, as well as uh, the, the Norwegians reporting that they're being jammed. So what's the what's this Nordic Baltic angle? Is it just a response to the LSTs, or or is it just the typical Russian bullying that they do periodically? What's what's happening uh, on this part of the, the of the of the theater of operations? Yeah, Jim, it's hard to speak for the Swedish reaction. To be frank, I'm biased. I think Swedes usually overreact and lean forward in most cases. So I honestly suspect that this is much to do about nothing. But I do feel like probably in the case of Sweden, there's some strange activity, particularly related to the drones. That's hard to explain. And a little bit of Finns, Finland, too. And I don't know if Russia's doing things to signal to them or if it's conducting intelligence reconnaissance. It's hard to tell at this phase. We're kind of pretty early into it. I will say that at the end of the day, this isn't about the Baltics, it's about Ukraine. And Ukraine is the focal point, and, and I want to be clear on that. Um, I agree. I actually think people completely misinterpreted what the Finnish president was trying to say. I would say they, they interpreted the complete inverse of what he was trying to communicate. Right. Um, and, and, they're not, and they haven't done uh, themselves, us, or Finland a particular service in interpretations they're making. But that's a separate issue. Right. Uh, I would say that uh, in terms of Russian Baltic fleet activity, you know, if there, if there genuinely is a large-scale military operation against Ukraine, there's going to be a really interesting interaction or showdown between NATO military force and Russian military force, because Russia's going to try to localize the conflict, deter any potential horizontal escalation, or deter anyone who might think in NATO that they might want to lean forward and intervene, right? So they're going to take pretty aggressive actions to try to deter the United States and NATO. NATO is going to logically forward deploy to deter Russia as well, because they don't know where Russia plans to stop or just around Ukraine. Make, make some assumptions, but you can never know for sure, right? And, and intentions can change, and, and U.S. allies are going to be very nervous. So NATO forces will be deployed in force. There'll be carrier strike groups out there just in case. And to have military options on the table, right? You deploy a force package. You don't necessarily know how you're going to respond yet, but you want to have options on, on the table depending on how the situation evolves. So, you know, even though this is about Ukraine, I want to be clear, things are going to get potentially pretty dicey out around in the Baltic Sea, the Norwegian Sea, uh, Black Sea, Mediterranean, in terms of air and naval activity in the, in the coming month. Um, and, and, and so that, that's all worth watching. Maybe we're seeing the early phases of that. But those who are kind of far removed from Ukraine and think, hey, at the end of the day, this can be Russia invading Ukraine and and it's not going to concern my country because it's far away in the European Northwest. Mm -mm. Actually, there's going to be a lot of military activity from both sides surrounding this. Yep. I, no, I agree. And I remembering, too, there's this large uh, exercise happening off of Norway. The Truman uh, Truman is up there. And I guess the Prince of Wales is it's even larger than Trident Juncture. That'll be going on over the next month, it sounds like. They're just beginning to to assemble. the. the so it's, it's, it's the makings of a 
strange, uh, uncomfortable situation up there. But thank you very much. That's that's very helpful. Yeah, I want to come back. We'll come back to some of those issues and get back more focused on Ukraine. But there, this issue of kind of a broader kind of menu of options that Russia has, one thing that has seemed to capture the attention of the press, at least, is this threat that Russia would be willing to deploy weapons to Cuba and Venezuela. Right. Um, Angela, so I'd, how you know, how do you think about that? How seriously should people take that? Is it bluster? Are they serious? Kind of help people understand uh, those particular comments. <laughs> so I think we have to take a couple of steps backwards and realize that this crisis, it's immediately about Ukraine, but it's about much more than Ukraine. It's like a crisis that's been probably nearly 30 years in the making, and certainly in the 22 years that Putin's been in power. And we come back to the you know, problem that after the Soviet Union collapsed and in the 1990s, the Western powers, the US and Europe, were unable to create a security system in Europe in which Russia had a stake. Uh, it remained outside of that. And we're now, and we've heard Putin complain about this for a long time. Now they complain about NATO enlargement. They didn't complain so much in the beginning. But what we're really talking about is Putin wanting the world to recognize Russia, not only as a great power, but essentially treat Russia as if it were the Soviet Union, even though it doesn't want to restore the Soviet Union, as a great power to be respected, to be feared, and which has a right to a sphere of influence. And as the Russians wait for the US, uh, and NATO to respond to these treaties uh, that they've presented us with, um, they are now saying, okay, if you're not willing to say that we do have a right to a sphere of influence, we do have a right to tell our neighbors what alliances they can join, how about we do what we think you're doing to us, you're there with your military trainers in Ukraine, we're going to go into your backyard. They think that the Monroe Doctrine is still functioning in the way that it used to function. I mean, it's not the same, but they look at this and they say, fine, we're going to harass you essentially or try and menace you in your own backyard. So we are going to send whatever they're going to send uh, to Cuba, to Venezuela. Uh, we're not quite back in 1963, you know, shades of the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, but um, uh, sorry, 1962, but they, um, you know, but they have these close ties both with Cuba and with, with Venezuela. Now, having said all of that, it's not clear that either the Cubans or the Venezuelans would necessarily want. I don't know what kinds of hardware or military hardware the Russians are talking about, um, but you know they, they have their own sovereign uh, programs. Uh, you know, Russia is active in Venezuela. They've obviously helped uh, Nicolas Maduro survive um, all the challenges to him. Uh, the U.S. would look upon this as a hostile act. But I think this, this is part of this, you know, general scheme that they have, the desire of the Kremlin to get, um, you know, the United States particularly to recognize it as another great power. Um, and that if we're not willing to retreat, essentially, uh, from the post-Soviet space, and even now from Eastern Europe, don't forget those treaties contain in them, or the NATO one at least, a demand that essentially NATO return, retreat really to its military posture that it had before Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic joined in 1999. Um, so, you know, the, it's extending the demands now, almost that it wants to have some influence over Central and Eastern Europe, even though they're in NATO. So I think this is, but I think we should take this relatively seriously um, as a threat, because the Russians already have um, some military advisors and uh, and security advisors in both of those countries, um, and they could do more. 
so that's why, you know, we haven't talked yet about solutions to all of this. I hope the Organization of American States would get involved in this if the Russians are threatening this. And by the way, the United Nations as well. Uh, you know, there are other multilateral fora in which we have to deal with this now, particularly when you hear those Russian threats. Yeah, good points, Angela. So the other kind of key question that seems to be top of mind for everyone, Mike, is kind of what form a Russian escalation would take and lots of different, you know, ranging from very kind of quote unquote low end scenarios to much more significant with Russia going all the way to Kiev. Um, I guess, can you kind of walk us through the different scenarios as you see them and what we might expect in terms of what Russia could do. I mean, I'll note one thing, it seems like lots of people are talking about, the, you know, are questioning whether or not Russia actually wants to hold territory and making points about whether or not that is a Russia, uh, you know, an objective or whether or not they're gonna take a different approach to accomplishing their objectives. So could, when you're thinking about different options for how this might play out, can you walk us through some of that? Sure, um, so I, I think it's important to say right up front that Russian military posture is such that obviously supports a range of military options when you look at it, and more than likely they're going to be a bit emergent depending on how the conflict plays out. And war is highly contingent, right? And it's very difficult to see beyond the initial move. Opponents have a big vote, so it depends on a lot of things. That It's not necessarily always easy uh, to foresee, but with all that in mind, I would say that you know at the very least the Russian operation is likely to begin with an air and strike campaign and they may hope that Ukraine is going to capitulate early on, but most likely it will involve a large scale ground force operation. And what they're threatening is a drive uh, across East Ukraine's Eastern regions, right, to the Dnieper River, um, and a circlement of Kiev from two sides actually, both from the Northeast and the Northwest, now that they've deployed a substantial amount of force in Belarus an operation along the southwestern coast threatening to encircle Odessa as well, and threatening to conduct amphibious uh, landings and then reinforcing with the 58th Army coming out of Crimea. Now, to those listening to this saying, this is a bit fantastical, can the Russian military really do this? Let me tell you, yes, it absolutely can. It is not fantastical at all. The war may go longer, it may go shorter, maybe over very quick. It all depends on a great deal of factor and they're not easy to war game out on one's own coffee table, right? So I just wanna be blunt about that. Um, now, is there any evidence that Russia intends to occupy and hold terrain? So here's the truth. My personal view of it is no, it doesn't make sense. In fact, the most logical operation for Russia is to conduct essentially a strategic raid, a larger version of the Russia-Georgia war. But to have maximum course of power and options, they first and foremost have to signal that they are prepared to occupy terrain because if they're going to try to leverage the United States and NATO making demands for an agreement to secure their withdrawal and to achieve their political aims, their threat is going to be that if we don't agree that they'll partition Ukraine. That's essentially the threat if they conduct a large-scale military operation. And to make that threat, whether or not they want to or not, they're going to make it look as though they're prepared to conduct an occupation. And yes, they have the following forces and they are, uh, let's put it this way, testing the reserves, signaling that they will have a sizable reserve force they might introduce to Ukraine as well. But there's another side of this equation, right? 
you know, even if the Russian plan isn't to occupy any terrain, in order to conduct a large operation like this, they will have to hold terrain for some time. It's just basic military science. You need to secure ground lines of communication. You have to secure critical infrastructure. Ukraine's a large country. It's a large country in Europe. Um, and, and either way, they would need follow-on forces and some reserves. But the big challenge for them was that, let's say things don't pan out the way they plan militarily, right? Well, I'm there, I'm confident that they've learned from the story of the Donbass, which is they could end up having to occupy and hold terrain, even though that wasn't the initial objective of the military operation, because sometimes, lots of times, things don't work out, right? And so they may very well have a strong plan B that in the worst case scenario, Yes, they may very well end up occupying territory and partitioning Ukraine, even though that's not the objective of this operation, right? If you look at a number of other Russian military operations, sometimes, as Donbass is a case in point, things have turned out that way. I'll make another argument that I never believed that annexation of Crimea was a predetermined outcome when they seized it, but that is a political decision that Russian uh, leadership made. Uh, having seized it based on how the operation went, but but the, they were they could have played a number of different ways. Um, so so I, I I guess this I hope this answer kind of shows clearly at least the way I lean. I definitely don't believe that occupying or annexing territory is Russia's goal. Mm-hmm. I don't think that even partitioning Ukraine is their preferred option, but I think they might be prepared to go that route if they you know they don't get meet, get their political demands. I think Angela is absolutely right. This is about, in many ways, relitigating the post-Cold War settlement. This is about the security architecture of Europe, Russia seeing it as an order of exclusion. And it's a final conversation about how security arrangements in Europe are determined, who determines security arrangements and security outcomes in Europe, right? Um, and, and Russia's role, Russia's role in, in being, in trying to claw back the position of being a system-determining power in Europe. That is ultimately what Putin wants. I think for him, and as I always say, I don't live rent-free in Vladimir Putin's head, right? Um, and most people that say they do are probably trying to sell you something. But I will say is it, it strikes me that both Ukraine from a policy perspective and Russia's place in European security architecture are two big pieces of unfinished business for him. And, he, and the reason I reached that is because he talks about it all the time for a, very, for a great number of years. He writes about it. He talks about it. He's pretty internally consistent in a lot of ways. Yeah, you can't say that he didn't give us those signals before. I just want to endorse what Michael said. I mean, he's been talking about a lot of this, at least since the Munich speech in 2007, but even before that. So it's just got to the point now where he feels this is an opportune time to act. Uh, But this is not new. Exactly right. Those are both great, greatly helpful. Let me, I'm going to, we're going to have to start thinking about what does a post-Ukraine-European security relationship with Russia, what does that look like? And, and that's not necessarily for this podcast, but just to throw it on the table to initial, mm-hmm. initial thinking, because we don't have much time left. But just off the top of your head, once something is, is, is resolved, not, not resolved, but once something is, the dust settles, if you will, with Russia doing something in Ukraine, along the lines you both have been kind of speculating about. So what do we, and what does NATO and the EU, you know, what's the what's the new long telegram gonna look like in terms of what do we do with Russia now? Is it containment? I think Lavrov was talking about, you can't contain us the way, what, what as, you, as you start thinking about the next day, the day after, 
what does it look like? What would you put in the strategic concept? <laughs> I mean, what what does this what the national security strategy? How do we think about a post Russia, a post Ukraine Russia? Jim, before we go there, because it is, I we can end on that question. The other kind of piece of this I want to take on is the domestic Russian politics. And you know, you'll hear lots of people saying, well, well, we don't hear the Russians preparing. Uh, you know, the Russian media is not preparing Russians for war and maybe trying to say that that's somehow an indicator of what, you know, what they're planning. Or you'll hear people say that, um, you know, this kind of the, the, the type of operation that I think Mike has sketched out, you know, you'll hear people say, oh, but, you know, Russians aren't going to support that. That's not going to be popular domestically. Angela, how do you how do how do you how does this play out domestically for Putin? Where do you see the the, the Russian public in terms of thinking about a potential conflict for Ukraine? And to what extent do you think that is a factor at all uh, in Putin's calculus? Just to kind of take on that domestic piece and help people explain how that fits into Putin's thinking and calculus about Ukraine. Sure, so I think you have to differentiate between the elite and the rest of the population. So let's talk about the Russian public. To the extent that we know how they feel about this, there's some Levada polling, there's more anecdotal evidence. I do not believe that the majority of the Russians want to be involved in a fratricidal war with Ukraine. Uh, remember, a lot of Russians come from mixed Russian-Ukrainian families. Uh, even if they've been watching just uh, the official media uh, and hearing all the propaganda about how bad Ukraine is, they, the, the, the enthusiasm that was there, for instance, for the annexation of Crimea, uh, and even maybe at the beginning of 2014 for the war in the Donbass, that's gone. And we know that even in 2014, when you had body bags coming back, uh, there were people obviously very, very unhappy. Now, uh, you know, Putin, this in the year uh, 2021, introduced very repressive measures. We know all of that. Um, he's now trying to control the internet so that Russians, uh, you know, don't have access to the non-Russian internet. So I, but I think that there will be, if there were to be, a war, and that this is all hypothetical, which involved significant numbers of Russian casualties. You would have opposition and resistance to it. You would have greater clampdown actually in Russia. And so the domestic situation could get worse. And we know that one thing that Putin fears greatly is the street. Now, in terms of sort of the elite, um, there are obviously there are people in the power ministries, there are people around Putin who are going to support him um, in this. I think that there are also other people in the elite, people who focus much more on the global economy and things like that, who are going to have much more, many more reservations about that because they understand that the consequence of such a military action would be further sanctions, further cutting them off, um, you know, from, from their assets in the West. So I think in terms of the elite, it would be mixed. Um, it's not, you know, this isn't going to bring down the Putin regime. Uh, but I, I do not think a conflict like that, however it's explained to the Russian people, would be popular. Okay, now we can get back to Jim's question, which I love, <laughs> which is the new long telegram. So Mike, write it. What is it? What does this new post-Ukraine order look like? What does the U.S. need to be thinking about? What is a, you know, I because I, I, I will say, I think, you know, if, if there is a major escalation in Ukraine, it, you know, we're back I mean, we might as well throw away the strategy that we had before. Clearly, we already know that the stable and predictable relationship is not a possibility. But I think this shapes how we think about a lot of things. There'll be implications for the Arctic. There'll be implications for the Russia-China relationship. I mean, 
I, you know, I, I think that this administration is going to have to do a lot of rethinking. Um, and so kind of help, let's, let's go down this path. This is going to be a long-term conversation that we'll all be having, but kind of what are some of your initial reactions uh, to what needs to be in this new long telegram? I don't know, Andrea. I don't want to write a long telegram. Uh, you Ken can write not, a short telegram, Mike. Yeah, write a short telegram. First of all, in 2021, no one's going to read a long telegram. It's going to be TLDR for most people. Most importantly, Kenan's not a model for me. It's a tragic figure in, in, in U.S. history. And if I, write, if I write a long telegram, it means that Anitza is going to come along, use my argument to argue for a policy I don't agree with at all, implement a strategy I totally disagree with, and push me out of government into irrelevance. And, and then, like, Kenan, you, you, know, you spend the rest of your career uh, complaining that you were misunderstood and changing your mind about what you actually meant. So uh, no offense, but I have two things I don't want to do is write a long telegram to be anywhere similar to George Kennan in my, uh, my trajectory. And I know he's well-regarded, well-respected and, and for good reason, but, but, um, but no, but it, it's a very, okay. It's a very, it's a very good question. So first I think, and I, I think that in some ways your, our article together in foreign affairs was incidentally uh, pressure ahead of the curve that came out this fall about the myth of Russian decline, which was a conversation of not, you know, the provocative title, but the point was being was being that Russia is a persistent problem set. Even if you think that China's a, the basic problem, Russia has to be seen as a persistent problem that um, if, if Ukraine is sort of unfinished business for Russia, then European security is fundamentally unfinished business for us. It's not just about Russia, it's about European security. The United States cannot live this dream of having just one adversary, having it be China, turning away to one theater and focusing on it, understanding that the key issues in European security are actually unresolved, right? The, as Angela said, you know, the main military power in Europe is not a stakeholder in European security. The dissolution of the Soviet Union is still ongoing. These are fundamentally wars of Soviet succession. That's what they are, right? As Sergei Boyer said, the collapse of the Soviet Union is not an event, it's a process. It's just only people with a poor sense of history think that it's a one-day affair. We're still witnessing it. And, and I think, you know, the not long telegram would actually have to tell America's story, have to tell American policy, actually, the story of how does America not just see Russia, but how does it see European security? How does that count for Russia and China, right? We know it wasn't going to be China only. I'm not sure it's going to be China mostly the way the Pentagon uh, thought it might be. I think that there's going to have to be a real prioritization where China's first, but Russia's a very significant second, right? Um, and, and there's a big unresolved question about European security. That's, that's what does that look like now? And unfortunately, Jimmy, in some ways, you are a much better place than I am in, in talking about uh, European security. But I do think that that's the big questions it's going to have to ask, right? European security, sort of the inertia we've been on the trajectory, sort of relegating it to a secondary theater, trying to make it an economy of force mission, going to Russia and seeing, you know, what would it take to sort of park the relationship, make it more predictable, right? If strategic stability would, would allow us to then focus on things we care about. And then a year into this, I think it's very clear that we're not going to be able to do that. We're just not going to be able to do that with Russia. We're not going to get a cheap price or a price that, that's, that's, everyone, that's everyone we're necessarily willing to pay. Europeans are not going to lead the way out of it. Boy, I sure learned a lot about the European Union in this crisis, let me tell you. And, uh, and, and, and it's invisibility. So if, uh, the, I think we're finding out a lot about ourselves in the last three, four months. I'll, I'll, kind, of, I'll kind of leave it at that. <laughs> this is, it's a stress test. This is a stress test of the institutions of transatlantic security. Sorry, you're oh, muted. Yeah. 
Angela, you and I worked the Russia portfolio on the campaign, and we did a lot mm-hmm. of work, I think, preparing the administration to come in and 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 pursue um, its approach, you know, the, the approach that it took towards Russia out of the gates. But so how does this re how does this affect your thinking about what US Russia policy should look like? I mean, is it is it, you know, has it has it kind of shake caused you to kind of rethink everything and feel like we need to shred everything up and start over and roll out something really entirely different um, and significantly change in a, in a new way? Or I don't know, you know, what does this what does this do? You have been such a an expert on US-Russia relations over decades and decades, uh, kind of going back with all of the work that you've done. How would you put this moment in context and what does it mean, do you think, for how we have to approach that relationship going forward? So, you know, on the one hand, the Biden administration came in explicitly saying it didn't want to reset with Russia. But in fact, what we've seen this year is an attempt to have a stable and predictable relationship, to have guardrails on the relationship, to park Russia so that the United States could focus on China. And in June, when President Biden met with President Putin, he said, I'm going to give this six months and let's see how it worked out. Well, we've seen how it worked out. And so even though I think this administration has tried hard to engage Russia on those issues where we can engage them and to try and put out a lot of the fires so that it can focus on China, we see the results uh, because the Russians don't want to be parked and the Russians do not want to be considered as a second tier problem as opposed to China. And therefore, um, we are now sort of more or less at another impasse. Now, I think the administration obviously will try to resolve this current crisis uh, diplomatically. But as we've said, we're dealing with much larger things now. And unfortunately, because of our own domestic problems and they're they're on display every day, um, it limits how much attention we can pay to this. And the Russians look at us and realize that we have an almost paralyzed political system. And that's probably why why they're acting now. It seems to me, you know, we haven't solved the question of where Russia belongs. This administration isn't going to be able to solve it either. And what we will see probably, and we've seen now in Kazakhstan, is, you know, as as Michael said, this process of the Soviet Soviet collapse is still ongoing. You have a post-Soviet syndrome in many of the countries of the former Soviet Union, and they resemble each other in many ways, much more than they resemble anything else. So I think you will gradually see Russia consolidating at least its its grip in a number of these countries. And then it'll be up to the US and its allies to say, well, if we are going to think about a new kind of containment, because it seems to me it's very hard for us to envisage a system where we do, where Russia has a stake in the European security system without trying to dominate its neighbors. I mean, that's what we're talking about. Then we're gonna have to think about what happens to Central and Eastern Europe. So we're we're sort of moving the problem uh, back to us. But I think, I do think that when the dust has settled on this, and I don't know when it will, the Biden administration will have to rethink its approach. Hopefully the Russians will still be interested in things like strategic stability dialogue, the nuclear dimension of it. Um, but but so far, I think their hopes that they could deal with Russia in a more productive way haven't been borne out. Well, I think um, we could go on for quite some time, but I think that's a good place to end. And I think, you know, hopefully we can plan to have you all back again to check in. Uh, clearly, this crisis isn't going away anytime soon. And it's just so 
appreciated, I think, and valued by Brussels sprouts listeners to hear from folks like you um, about what's going on and explaining it and helping people interpret events on the ground. So thank you very much for doing this. And I hope we can check in in the next couple of weeks um, based on what's happening. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks.